This morning, I am in the ninth week of my sermon series entitled Strength and Weakness, where I've been going through the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And if you're unfamiliar with the book, it was a letter. 2 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, to a church in Corinth, which was part of ancient Greece, part of the Roman Empire. And Paul had started the church in Corinth around the year 50 AD, built up the church, turned it over to leaders that were there and moved on to start some other churches. And then as issues arose in Corinth, he would send letters to address those issues. And unfortunately, one of the biggest issues that was arising in Corinth was that there were false teachers who had arisen in their midst. And these false teachers were tearing down Paul's reputation. They were causing discord between Paul and the Corinthian church that he loved so much, causing a lot of tension. And so Paul, in this book, in this letter... Uh, he's in a very tricky situation because he's trying to defend his reputation as their apostle and church planter without getting defensive. He's trying to expose these false teachers without sounding petty and jealous. And he's trying to win back the affection of the Corinthian church without offending them, without pushing them away. I mean, you can think maybe the closest analogy is if you were a parent and you have a parent, I'm sorry, and you have a child who's kind of maybe getting into a relationship that you don't think is good for them and you're trying to somehow gently and gingerly like address that without pushing them away and offending them. Paul seems to be in that kind of situation where he's trying to win back the hearts of the <coughs> Corinthian church and defend his authority and that what he's teaching them is the truth and what these other teachers are teaching them is not the truth. Even in verse 10 of this verse, just an example of what he quotes there saying about him. It says, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. This is some of the slander, right? That they're saying, oh, when he writes these letters to you, they're all bold, you know, because he's at a distance. But when he's in person, he's a coward. He's timid. And he's a terrible public speaker. So Paul's dealing with this. This church that he started, these people he loves so much, how to win back their affection, how to get them right with God and with the gospel without coming across as defensive or petty or jealous. So 2 Corinthians 10 that we're going to be in, he really has to get into this in, in 2 Corinthians 10. But in the process, he also has something really important to teach us about the battles that we find, the, the battles that we face in our lives and the opposition and how to address those, how to deal with them. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. Seem to have. Sorry, I lost verses 1 and 2 there. Let me just read verses 1 and 2. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. He begins by just basically saying, like, okay, they're calling me, you know, timid when I'm face-to-face -face and bold when I'm away. And he flips it on them and he says, you know, I beg you, I, I, and by the meekness and gentleness, I who am timid when away, I, I'm begging you that I don't have to, won't have to be as bold as I expect to be when I'm with you. So he kind of flips it on them that now I'm writing to you timidly, you know, meekly, entreating you, but when I come, I expect to have to be bold with these false teachers. And then he goes on to say this, for though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are looking only on the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to try, be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters, when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did, we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to be like good soil for the seed, for the word that you are speaking that it would take root in our lives, that it would bear much fruit. Help us to understand and apply this to our lives, that you might be glorified in our lives and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, as you can see, hopefully, he's really walking this tightrope of trying to defend himself and his authority and his place without getting defensive and trying to expose these false teachers without being petty and jealous, trying to win back the affection of the Corinthians without seeming needy, you know, without offending them or pushing them away. And I want to focus particularly on verses 3 to 6, which I think are the heart of this passage, where he talks about this war that we are waging and the weapons with which we fight. So there's two things in particular that I want to focus on. He says, to begin with, that we are in a spiritual battle. In verses 3 through 5, he says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are in a spiritual battle, he's saying. We are in a war and it's not the war of this earth. It's not fought with the weapons of this world. There's a greater battle being waged that we are a part of, that we find ourselves a part of as we follow Christ. If you've ever heard the term spiritual warfare, this language sounds familiar to you. Think of what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 12. He said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 12, it says, our struggle. Does anyone feel like life is a struggle? Anyone out there? Anyone out there feel like life is a struggle? He says, yeah, life is a struggle, but I want you to know, he says, your struggle is not against the things of this world primarily. 
that behind the things of this world is a spiritual reality. And he says, in particular, there is a devil. There are demons, these fallen angels who serve this devil. And they are trying to destroy you and everything that is of God. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your standing as the devil schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world. 1 John 5.19 puts it this way, We know that, the, that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. There's a contrast for you. At the same time, he says, first of all, you are an adopted child of God, beloved by him, protected by him, belonging to him. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And at the same time, we live in enemy territory. We live in a world that is under the control of the evil one. Yes, God is sovereign, but right now, there is a devil. There are demons. And we live in this enemy territory right now. This spiritual battle. And it's going to demand courage and perseverance and the help and support of your brothers and sisters in the fight. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised, he says. Some of you and some, I think, believers are surprised because they've been sold a gospel of health and wealth and a gospel that says like, hey, you come to Christ and it is going to be blessing and promotion and advance and all these amazing things that are going to happen until you die. And then the world turns out to be really difficult and the struggles happen and not every prayer is answered and not everything goes your way and you don't understand what God is up to and where he is. And if you believed that lie, you'd be like, that was a false thing that you know I don't know where this God is or what I'm doing wrong but it says Peter says don't be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering you live in enemy territory you're following Jesus who suffered and was crucified and if that's who you're following you're going to suffer expect to suffer as you pour yourself out sacrificially you are going to suffer there is an enemy there are enemies against you you are in a battle this is not a country club this is not a picnic in the park. You're in a war. You're in a battle. Do not be surprised when you suffer. This reality is something that God has really been impressing on my heart the last couple of months. I feel like if I look at the way I approach life, so much of the way I go through life, is, it's, it's as if it is a game. You know, I love games, love sports, and in so many ways I have this mindset of approaching things as if it's a game, and God has been waking me up over the past couple of months that this is no game, this is a battle. That these are the souls of men and women at stake. That God has put me in a position to speak his words that can bring eternal life. To pray for people, that their eyes might be open, that they might know God, that this is a battle, this is not a joke, this is not a game, this is not something to be taken lightly. That the souls of the men and women listening right now matter eternally. And that this is not a game, this is not a joke, this is a battle. And it's going to take men and women of courage and perseverance, willing to stand up and fight, to join together, to have each other's backs against our common enemy. We are in a battle. 
and we know that there is an enemy, and he will use every tactic in the book, lying, accusing, tempting us, whatever he can do to pull us away from God, to lie about who God is, to lie about who we are, to accuse us, to accuse him, to tempt us, to convince us that there's something other than God that will bring us life and salvation and joy and peace and all of those things. There is an enemy and his desire is to destroy you, to separate you from God. He will do everything in his power to do that. To destroy you, to destroy your family, to destroy your community, to destroy your church. But then in chapter 10, Paul, I believe, begins talking about a whole other level of spiritual warfare. He says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds, that word stronghold is the word for fortress, for prison. Again, In other words, you're not coming at it with the weapons of this world. This is a stronghold that must be demolished by divine power, he says. And then he says, we demolish arguments in every pretension every high and lofty argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I think what he's getting at here is that he's saying there are systems of thought, there are ideologies, there are arguments and pretensions out there setting themselves up against the knowledge of God. They're like fortresses. They're like prisons that people are enslaved in. And the weapons of this world are not going to be enough to free them. That it's going to take divine power, weapons with divine power, to free people from these prisons. These ideologies and these ways of thinking, these false ways of thinking that people are trapped in. If you don't know what an ideology, a system of belief, think about some of the ideologies in our world that usually have a mixture of truth and error. And it takes careful discernment to know what is truth and what is error. There's systems of belief you look around. There's, there's Catholicism. You know, what is true? What is error in Catholicism? There is the charismatic movement. What is truth? What is error in that? There's the New Apostolic Reformation in places like Bethel Church and Hillsong. What's truth? What's error in these movements that are systems of belief? Hinduism and Mormonism, New Age movements, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, all of these systems of belief and ideologies that are out there saying this is the way the world is, this is what truth is. Because I believe Paul is talking about these Corinthian, these false leaders in Corinth coming in, proclaiming these false ideologies that are captivating the Corinthian people. And he says, I'm coming, and I'm not going to fight on their turf, I'm not going to fight the way they fight. I'm coming with divine power to demolish these strongholds, to free those who are in prison to these false ideologies. You think about our world, there's all kinds, again, of ideologies, systems of belief that, again, are a mixture of truth and error, usually, that take careful discernment. You think about our consumerism, the consumerist mindset of approaching the world saying, what's in it for me? The evolutionary theory mindset that says we are just the products of a godless evolution. The critical theory, critical race theory, separating people into groups the dominant, the oppressors, and the oppressed groups, the whites and the non-whites, the transgender ideology that says that gender is something you can choose, 
that just because you're born a man or a woman, you can choose to be something else. The individualistic mindset that says what I want is more important than the collective, what my neighbor needs. Patriotism, the idea that America should be prioritized above all other countries. There's all kinds of ideologies out there. All are a mix of truth and error. How do you come against them and discern what is true and what is error? What are the weapons that we use? And again, he says these ideologies, these ways of thinking are like fortresses. They're like prisons in which people are enslaved that must be set free. As Jesus said in John 8, 31 to 32, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's something about the truth of God, he says, that has the ability to free those who are enslaved in false ways of believing and false ways of living. So again, we are in a spiritual battle. This is not a country club. This is not a picnic. It's not a joke. It's not a game. There is a spiritual battle happening, raging all around us that we are in many ways unaware of, but that God has called us to be warriors in. And what are the weapons that he has given us to fight this spiritual battle? Because we will not win this battle with the weapons of this world. We're in a spiritual battle, but we will not win the battle with the weapons of this world. Again, he says, for though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He doesn't come out and say, here's the weapons of the world, but you can probably come up with a pretty good idea. Certainly these Corinthian false teachers were coming in, and they were using the weapons of slander to slander Paul's reputation, and then they were using the weapon of self-promotion to build themselves up and commend themselves. They elevated themselves, they took credit for what Paul had done, and they tried to ruin Paul's reputation. But our world has so many other weapons. What other weapons do you feel like are out there that the world uses? Force and coercion. The world uses political power to get its way. The world uses the media to control the media, control information to get its way, to win the battle. It uses manipulation. Increasingly, the world uses public shaming to win the battle. It'll fight its battle and use the weapons of this world to win and to control. But Paul says, I'm not going to use those methods. I have weapons that are more, more stronger than that other weapons that I will fight with because the true enemy says is not flesh and blood. It's not even these false teachers. The true enemy is Satan. It's the spiritual forces of evil behind all of this. And it's going to take divine power to attack that. Listen again to Paul's words in Ephesians 6, the armor of God. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after, after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So what are the weapons we fight with? First is this. It's the Word of God. The first weapon we fight with is God's Word. Now that is a weapon of God, a divine weapon. You look at this and you're like, okay, if someone's coming against me with a gun and I'm coming against them with this, seems unfair. But Paul's saying there is a greater battle that is not one with guns, it's not one with knives, it's not one with any weapons of this world, it is one with the Word of God. What's the only offensive weapon in Ephesians 6? He said it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Everything else is all about salvation, how that protects us from the enemy. That as he comes against us, we stand against him with the salvation we have in Jesus. You know, and there's nothing he can do to t- attack us or to, nothing he can do to take us away from God because we belong to him. But the only offensive weapon we have is the word of God, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Or as Hebrews 4.12 puts it, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is why when we come on a Sunday morning, part of what I'm doing, I think, is equipping you, right? I'm giving you an arsenal, hopefully, as I give you the word of God and what it says, what God has to say through his word. It's to equip you for the battle that you face. Again, 2 Corinthians 10, he says, at the end there, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought, every ideology, every way of thinking to make it obedient to Christ, to filter it through the lens of what God has said, the Word of God. The Word of God is our sword and our weapon, the first weapon the divine has divine power. I mean, even look in this section. Paul doesn't come out and just slander the false teachers. Instead, he says this. He quotes the Bible. He says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He just quotes scripture and says, Look, this is what these people are doing. They are commending themselves, building themselves up, approving themselves. But the word says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So is it the one who's boasting in himself or the one who will only boast in the Lord? Who is the man of God? So the first weapon we have is the Word of God. Remember how Jesus fought against the enemy when he was tempted? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. How does he defeat the enemy? It is written, it is written, it is written. The word of God, the sword of the spirit, that is how he wins the spiritual battle. It is written. The word of God is the weapon in his hand. And no matter what battle you are facing, whatever opposition is coming your way, that is your weapon. It is written. This is why it's so important that as a church right now, we are going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation this year. so that you will have the word of God as the sword of the spirit, so that you'll be able to speak truth to whatever opposition comes your way. No, it is written that God always works all things together for good 
So I do not have to be in despair because I know no matter what I'm going through, God is working it for good. I know that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ, you have come that I might have life and have it to the fullest. So I'm going to put my trust in you. I know that no one will ever snatch me out of your hand, God. I know that I belong to you. No matter what opposition comes my way, I know, God, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter whether I'm poor, rich, whether I'm in sickness and health, no matter what is coming my way, God, I can do anything and everything through you. I know that in this world I will have trouble, but I can take heart that you have overcome the world. I know that in the end, God, you'll put a final end to sin and suffering and death. And I'll be with you forever. That is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God with which we attack the enemy, with which we remind ourselves of the truth of God and find strength. And when it comes to the ideologies of the world, when it comes to the belief systems of this world, we bring the Word of God to it. Yes, we bring worldly arguments, but that's not going to be enough. We need to also bring the Word of God. We need to bring the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of Acts chapter 17. The Berean church, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Everything that you hear must be examined by the Word of God. Everything I say must be examined by the Word of God. This is so important to know, especially those of you who are younger, to not just take blindly what the world tells you, what the culture tells you, what the media tells you, to not just take blindly even what pastors tell you, but to evaluate it all by the Word of God, which is the standard of truth. You hear what people say, the beliefs, the ideologies, and you say, how does that line up against what God's word says? Again, most of the belief systems and ideologies of this world are a mixture of truth and error. And when you line them up against the word of God, it helps you to be able to discern what is true and what is error and what is false. You think again about, what about the ideology of the American dream? It's become so natural to us, Right? That the, the, the point of life is life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. To make a life for yourself, to go live in the suburbs and, you know, live in this kind of comfort to advance yourself. Is it true? Or when you line it up against God's word, is there something greater that God is calling us to than just the pursuit of happiness, that maybe the pursuit of holiness, maybe that true joy is not found in having more stuff, but in having more of him. Is freedom really about just having no one who can tell you what to do? Being able to do whatever you want? Or is freedom submitting yourself to the one who created you and knows what is best for you? Is that true freedom? What about this consumerist mindset that we've just been ingrained with by advertisement after advertisement after advertisement? That we should just go into every situation in life asking, what's in it for me? What can this person do for me? What can this church do for me? What can this woman do for me? What can this man do for me? Is that really the way that God has created us to approach life? Or do we look at what he's done for us and then enter the world saying, what can I do for others? How can I serve others? 
What about the message of patriotism and prioritizing America above other countries, a nationalism that merges Christianity and politics? Is that really what God has called us to in his word? To elevate one country above the rest of the world that he died for and loved so much? Or is it to recognize that the church universal is our people above any other division? What about the transgender ideology that teaches that gender is just a social construct? That if a man declares that he's a woman, then he's a woman or she's a woman. What about that? What does the word of God say about that? What about individualism? That we should put ourselves above our neighbor, that we should live for ourselves above the community. Again, there are so many ideologies out there, so many belief systems out there. Some of them are just part of the culture and you don't even realize you're believing it. Some of them are in your face and you're not sure what to think about it. You take everything to the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, like the Bereans, to take it apart and say, how does this compare to the standard of God's truth? The word of God is the first and most powerful weapon in our hand. But that's not the only weapon. The second weapon is prayer. The second weapon we have is prayer. Remember again, Ephesians 6.18, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. I mean, if you're thinking about this from an earthly mindset, again, are these not the weakest weapons? I'm saying this and talking to God are weapons that are greater than any gun, any sword, anything this world can use. It takes great faith, doesn't it, to to think that these are the weapons that we need to trust in as opposed to, you know, just doing everything in our own effort to win the battle. But we know God can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime, right? That God can do more in a moment in response to our prayers than we could ever do in all our days of working and striving and fighting. So if God is the commander of the army, the Lord of hosts, then should we not be in touch with him? Should we not be calling out to him to fight on our behalf? One biblical example of the power of prayer is found in Daniel chapter 10. It's a really interesting story where Daniel receives a vision from God about this great battle that's going to come and it it shakes him up so much that he decides to pray and fast for 21 days to seek God as to what that vision meant because he had such a burden for his people. And at the end of the 21 days, he stops fasting and then on the 24th day, he's visited by an angel. And this is what happens. It says, the the angel says, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was determined there with the king of, I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Did you hear what the angel said there? He says, Daniel, when you turned to pray 24 days ago, the Lord sent me to you 
but I was detained by this spiritual being who he calls the Prince of Persia, and they fought. For 21 days, it says he was detained, and you know, Daniel, of course, was praying and fasting for 21 days. And then Michael, the archangel, came to free him so he could make it to him and tell him what the Lord had told him to share with him. You don't get many like pictures like this of what's going on behind the scenes. And I know I'm speaking to things way beyond my understanding here. But could it be... Could it be that your prayers have that kind of effect in the heavenly realms in the spiritual battle? Could it be that sometimes when you are praying and after a few days or hours or minutes you give up and you're just like, well, that didn't accomplish anything? Could it be that perhaps you gave up too soon, that your prayers are impacting what is going on in the spiritual realm? That they are part of this larger battle that is going on? And that as Daniel here prayed and fasted for 21 days, on that 21st day, the battle was won and this angel was able to make it through. And for whatever reason, Daniel knew he needed to stop praying and fasting at the end of 21 days there. But could it be that that is the kind of impact your prayers have? It's not just throwing up words to God and, well, maybe he came through, maybe he didn't. And, but that there is a spiritual power There is a divine power in your prayers that you are completely ignorant of. What would it look like for you to take this seriously? To recognize that by your prayers, by the word of God, that you have weapons in your hand that God has given you that are greater than any weapon this world has to offer. Have you ever prayed and fasted for things that God has put on your heart, for things you want to see God do in this world? Have you ever come with him with that, come before him with that kind of fervency? Not just as some routine that you're supposed to do because you're a Christian, you're supposed to pray, but because you have that kind of desire for him, that kind of desire to see him work in this world, desire to see people come to faith, desire to see his kingdom come in this earth as it is in heaven. The third weapon that he gives us, again, from the perspective of earth, just seems so weak, doesn't it? But in this passage, it seems that obedience is the third weapon that he gives us. That there's spiritual power in our obedience. Going back again to that passage. At the end there, he says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The weapons we fight with aren't the weapons of this world. And one of the ways we fight, he says, is to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That there is spiritual power in resisting the enemy and submitting yourselves to God and living in obedience to him. James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Where is the spiritual power coming against the enemy, he says? From submitting yourself to God. Imagine how powerful you would be as a man or woman, with these weapons, if you took them to heart, if you fought and knew his word and and used that and and measured everything by it, evaluated everything by God's word, if you were a man or woman of prayer with that kind of commitment, passion, dedication to God's kingdom and to the people who are lost and the people who 
who need to be encouraged and built up. And if your life was about taking every thought captive, every thought, not even action, every thought captive, of living in submission to him, living in obedience, following after Jesus, how powerful you would be. The divine strength that would be in you. Again, if this is a battle and Jesus is the commander-in-chief, then what's our call? It's to obey. It's to fall in line. It's to submit to him as the leader, as the captain of the army. It reminds me when I became a believer back when I was freshman in college, the first book, there was a book table there at the Christian Fellowship Group, and the first thing I picked up was this little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. It was written in 1951. And it was just kind of using the analogy of a house of let, you know, you let God in when you're saved and then he kind of wants to go through every room of your house. Let me become Lord of the dining room and the living room and the bedroom and the basement and the closets and all of that, metaphorically speaking. Allowing him to become master. Submitting to him. And for those who struggle with that idea of what, what submitting to God, think of it in terms of maybe of like an athlete submitting to a coach who brings out the best in you. Right? When an athlete finds a coach that brings out the best in them, they want to submit because they know this coach is going to bring out the best in them. It's going to make them the best they can possibly be. And if that's who God is, that God brings out the best in us, his leadership unleashes what is in us, the divine power that God has put in us, why would we not joyfully then submit to him? And if we're going to fall in line with Jesus, it means obeying him by sacrificially loving people. Speaking the truth in love. Look how Paul's like, I'm going to speak the truth in love to the Corinthians. I'm going to give you time to repent. And then when I show up, I'm going to punish those who are disobedient. I'm going to exercise church discipline on those who are not in line. But please recognize that Obeying God means demolishing arguments and ideologies. It does not mean demolishing people, right? Can I say that again? It means demolishing ideologies and arguments. It does not mean demolishing people. God's called us to love people, but to love them so much that we would set them free from the false ideologies and belief systems by the power of God, by his divine weapons, the word of God, and prayer, and our obedience. So again, let me just close again, remind you, you are in a spiritual battle. When you woke up this morning, maybe you felt like you were suffering, you felt like you were struggling, you didn't know why, it's because you're in a spiritual battle. It's not just the aches and the pains and the money troubles and the financial issues and the work issues and the relational issues. There's behind that an enemy who wants to destroy. And his sights are trained on you. And God is looking for warriors, men and women willing to stand up, be courageous, willing to persevere in the fight, have each other's back, and fight with the weapons of this, of not of this world, but the weapons that have divine power, prayer, the word of God, and obedience, submission to the captain, to the commander-in-chief. Amen?